Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we will be discussing this year's winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics, the announcement of that winner came early last week. So stick around for our chat about Claudia Golden. But first, we wanted to continue talking about the situation in the Middle East from a slightly different angle. The data point there is $41.5 billion. That was the expected external financing needs of Egypt just to get through this year. There was a lot of talk in financial circles about Egypt's deepening debt crisis and its desperate need for sources of money, but that was all before the war in Gaza, which has put Egypt in the news for very different reasons. Between Gaza and Egypt could open for a few hours today. That could give some Palestinians a chance to get out before the ground incursion. But most have nowhere to go. Rafah, that's where Gaza meets Egypt in the south. There's a gate there. On one side of the border, thousands of Gazans are desperately trying to Egypt agreed to open this Rafah border crossing to allow aid into Gaza on Friday. It's the only border that is not with Israel. What do we know about this? Egypt, of course, is one of the border states of both Gaza and Israel. And that's put it at the center of diplomacy over humanitarian aid or the possible movement of Palestinian refugees and over potentially, eventually, perhaps reaching some sort of ceasefire or at least some kind of release of the hostages held by Hamas. None of that has made Egypt's debt problems go away, though this past summer, just to give another perspective on those problems, Egypt's Minister of Finance, Mohamed Mati, announced that the debt-to-GDP ratio of Egypt was expected to reach 97%. That was just during the summer, which is a 17% increase from June 2022. So we thought this week focusing on Egypt could be useful both in relation to this crisis, but just in general, a big country in the world and worth talking about. So Adam, as I mentioned, there's a lot of talk right now of Egypt being asked to take in refugees from Gaza. And I just wondered whether you, whether you think that's a realistic request of Egypt. I mean, is there a kind of financial deal that could be worked out, including help with Egypt's debt problems that, that I mentioned, where it would be something that Egypt could or should consider? Or is this just a category mistake to be thinking of this kind of diplomatic deal over refugees in economic terms? It is true that Egypt has done sort of debt for politics swaps in the past, most notably in 1991 in the first Gulf War when, when the UN-endorsed um, co American-led coalition was mobilizing a massive military force to expel Saddam from Kuwait. Um, Osman Barak um, contributed an entire Egyptian division 
to that military operation uh, in exchange for uh, about $10 billion worth of debt relief. So those kind of deals are something that Cairo will indulge in. But I think in this particular case, there really is a category mistake. And the category mistake may actually rely in the thinking about refugees rather than really on the Egyptian side. Um, Because from Egypt's point of view, the pragmatic reason for not being particularly welcoming to Palestinians from Gaza is that the you know the dominant political force in Gaza is Hamas and Hamas is the lineal Palestinian descendant of the Muslim Brotherhood which is the you know arch nemesis of the soldiers that have ruled um, Egypt since the 50s and even before that the British-backed puppet regime in, in Egypt. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded in Egypt in 1928 as the main modern electoralist mass Islamic political movement and has essentially been at odds with the Egyptian state ever since. And so Muslim Brotherhood slash Hamas are not Al-Qaeda or ISIS by any means at all. And the Egyptian regime has fought a long struggle with Islamic radicalism of that ilk in the Sinai, which it only just concluded successfully with with massive military repression. But there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of um, Muslim Brotherhood supporters and political figures in uh, Egyptian jails. And so welcoming a large contingent of Hamas loyalists from Gaza to to Egypt, to the Sinai, is is the last thing that, that Cairo has on its mind, all the more because Again, this category of refugee doesn't really grasp what's going on here, or rather it doesn't grasp the singular significance of refugee status in the Palestine question, because the entire Palestine question is essentially about the status of refugees. In other words, the vast majority of the Palestinian population since the Nakba, since the disaster, since the expulsion and flight from the emerging state of Israel in in 1948. So there is this huge population of now roughly 6 million Palestinians who consider themselves permanently displaced from their actual homeland. And that's most of the population of Gaza, as is, as Gaza. But if you then, as it were, go along with this logic, which is to say that to save these people from um, Israel's military operations, they have to be moved out of Gaza you're complicit with this logic of further displacing the Palestinians because, and this is the crucial thing, Israel does not recognize the right of return. So it doesn't recognize the right of displaced Palestinians to go back. Now, the Israelis have made noises about Gaza, about the fact that they will allow the Palestinians to go back to North Gaza when they finish the operation and so on and so forth. But no one believes those promises or professes not to believe them. And in any case, politically speaking, for the Cairo regime to open its doors would essentially be, and this is what they're afraid of, as it were, endorsing what would be called ethnic cleansing. So de facto, in the name of humanitarianism, you would become complicit in this sequential ratcheting displacement of the Palestinian population from their homeland. And it's no secret either that on the right wing of Israeli politics, amongst the most hardline Zionists, that's an, you know, it's an open secret that that is indeed their vision of how this is going to be solved. Palestinians are just Arabs. Arabs have got plenty of places to go. They should go to them for heaven's sake, right? And and which, of course, cuts across any kind of Palestinian claim to this particular territory and, and, and is obviously, in general, a dehumanizing discourse. And so the Egyptians fear, on top of everything else, that if they welcomed this refugee, quote-unquote, population, they would be giving sanctuary to a now triply, quadruply resentful Palestinian population, which would then be bound, presumably, to launch military operations, guerrilla terrorist attacks across 
what would then be the Egyptian-Israeli border into Israel. And then Cairo summons the ultimate fear, which is that this would undo the 1979 peace deal between Egypt and Israel. And so then the entire peace order, such as it is in the Middle East, would collapse. And so for all of these reasons, you know, this sort of, oh, well, why don't they just let them go? Why don't they welcome them? Oh, here's some money kind of offering is just, it's, it's a, I mean, to call it a category mistake, it's so willfully blind to what is the obvious politics here. This is not Ukraine. And even in the case of Ukraine, there is contentious politics around how long the Ukrainian refugees should stay and whether men come and so on. We've actually discussed this on the show. This issue of humanitarian relief for refugees when a state is facing an existential crisis is quite double-edged. And so, yes, there is, I, I think it's too kind to call it a logical category mistake. There's a sort of willful blindness to the obvious politics of this situation when you ask that kind of faux naïf question. So I thought we could zoom out then a bit after that useful clarification. And yeah, I, I wonder about placing Egypt's economy in a broader context. I mean, it seems like we would have thought of Egypt not so long ago as the center of gravity of the entire Arab world. And that's pretty clearly no longer the case, at least, you know, in a geopolitical context, it seems like Saudi Arabia has now become the most influential actor in the region. And I wonder, is that kind of shift the product of economic stagnation of Egypt? And I guess even despite all that, can a country like Egypt retain its cultural preeminence, even when its political and economic significance wane in this way? I think this is such a useful, these historical questions are so useful to clarify, you know, because from the outside, people just sort of look at the quote unquote Middle East and it's been going on as an issue for as long as, you know, I was born in 1967, <laughs> which is the year where, you know, the modern problem takes on its modern shape with this catastrophic defeat of the of the Arabs in the Arab-Israeli war and the huge extension of Israeli territory. So literally for my entire life, this problem has been there. And so I think there is a tendency on the part of folks outside the region to sort of merge this all into one long history, which is essentially endlessly the same. And whereas, as we were saying, in fact, on the show the other day, the differences between then and now are so radical. And Egypt's decline is a key aspect of that. And the emergence of Saudi Arabia, which in the early 70s was still a very young state with essentially no military force, basically reliant on the British Empire, not the Americans, because the Americans don't enter until much later with military force on a large scale, on the British Empire for its security, right, to the global factor that Saudi Arabia is today. Like, it's a transformed world. And the loser here, one of the losers, I mean, Syria is the big, big, big loser. Iraq is the big, big, big loser. These are the disaster cases. Iran is marginalized and, you know, hanging on for dear life in the face of sanctions. But Egypt is a really dramatic story of decline because, yeah, as you say, you would have thought of Egypt for obvious reasons, like as one of the great cradles of human civilization, forget the Arab world or the Muslim world, or just as human civilization too court, cool, right? I mean, it's just one of the places of the greatest urban sophistication and civilizational sophistication in the world. It, you know, my historian colleagues who study the Arab world, but the overwhelming majority of them study Egypt or in Egypt, because it's the place where you go around the turn of the century. NASA in the 1950s, the, the regime of the, the military Republic was the center of one of the centers of non-aligned politics, played very skillfully between the blocks, ended up as a major recipient of Soviet aid to build the Aswan Dam, but also to build a very powerful military 
in the 50s and 60s or what was taken to be a powerful military. Then there's this extraordinary project of a a united Arab Republic in which Syria and Egypt are actually merged together as a kind of mega state between 58 and 61. And and so it really was, as you said, like the absolute epicenter of a non-aligned, nationalist, modernizing, you know, Arab politics, not the world that we're currently in today. And how we get to where we are today is a kind of, I think, a story of decline. It starts with military defeat at the hands of the Israelis four times over, 48, 56, 67, 73, though 73 is a kind of heroic defeat on the Egyptian part. And then you have Sadat, who pivots away from Nasser's non-aligned politics to a pro-American policy, and on that basis then does the deal in 79 with Israel, which shapes the modern Middle East because the big state threat to Israel is, is, is gone at that point. And then Sadat pays the price for that in, in 81 with his assassination. And then Mubarak's regime, which is there all the way from 81 through 2011, really anchors, is the Arab anchor of America's position in the, in the Middle East in all that time. But I think that's really where you begin to see the problems catching up with Egypt. And they're part economic. But the economic problems, I think, really are devastating because there is a political opposition. And so the failure of the regime to honor the social contract, essentially, with the Egyptian population drives Cairo into an increasingly repressive position, which ultimately undermines its legitimacy and and brings Mubarak's regime down in 2011. But then, as it were, the real disaster is that having had the regime collapse, in 2011, and then elections quite unambiguously return a Muslim Brotherhood government, as it were, the the Egyptian elite, much of the middle class, then flip back to supporting the military dictatorship and that Sisi's regime, which has been ruling for the last 10 years, now no longer as a kind of key player, but more as um, a client that's simply too big to fail. And so you know, from once upon a time, having been the dominant force in Arab politics, it's Egypt is now effectively a financial client state of Saudi Arabia and, for heaven's sake, the United Arab Emirates, like a tiny, you know, commercial, grown out of nothing, oil and gas based, you know, Johnny come lately, Vegas style urban civilization that's popped up, which now lords it over Egypt and really calls the shots in terms of financing. I mean, it's really a, 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 it's fallen a very long way. And I think it's a combination of a very rough environment. I mean, many of the Arab states, of course, from the early post-colonial period have failed. It's not the only one, and it hasn't failed the way that Iraq or Syria have failed. A rough environment and then this essential failure to solve the domestic economic politics, political economy problem. Um, now, it would be easier, of course, if they had a good dynamic economic growth model. But there's also essentially a political issue here that the, the military elite have really all the way back to the period when the, the British were the, were the, were the overseers of, of Egyptian politics have, have always essentially failed to do a bargain with the Muslim masses represented by the Muslim Brotherhood. And that that's at the core of the, and this is also the West's ambiguity, is that, you know, people talk as though they want democracy for the Middle East, and it would have to start in Egypt. But that would imply essentially endorsing a bit like in, in Turkey, and Turkey was the great ally of the Muslim Brotherhood, like whatever that process coughed up in terms of the political complexion of a truly mass and popular politics in, in Egypt. So it's really... It's a tragic story, I think. And that's really the, it's the terms that one would have to talk about. It's now no longer obvious 
you know, what the strategy should be for Egypt, where you go next, politically or economically. So I guess to focus then on the economic program of the current government under President Sisi, who has been in power since organizing a coup against the government run by the Muslim Brotherhood after the Arab Spring. I'm curious, yeah, how would you characterize Sisi's economic program? I mean, there's a lot of talk of these mega projects that Sisi has initiated that have become sort of white elephants, including a new administrative capital, a new summer capital on the northern coast, just tens of billions of dollars in these mega projects. I mean, is this all sort of motivated by an assumption that the liberalization under Mubarak was actually itself responsible for leading to the social disruptions of, of the Arab Spring, and that's what Sisi is trying to avoid? Yeah, we should put the you know we should put the talk of economic failure just in context a little bit. I mean, and the numbers are really hard to wrap one's head around. So, in just flat exchange rate terms, and the exchange rate is constantly fluctuating. So. This may exaggerate Egypt's standing, but in in flat dollar terms, um, GDP per capita in Egypt is like $3,600 per head, which is, you know, um, not quite twice India's. So 60 to 70% head of India. It's not a, it's a lower middle income country, not a low income country or developing country in any, you know, that sense of the word. In, In purchasing power parity terms, so adjusted for the cost of living, which again is quite difficult to actually figure out because the exchange rates and the price system is all is messed up and regulated in various ways. But you know, standard estimates put Egypt's real purchasing power parity GDP per capita in the twelve to thirteen thousand dollars a year range, right? So we're really not talking, and no one should have the idea, and anyone who's been on holiday in Egypt will know you're not talking about a desperately impoverished national economy as such, but you are talking about a country with very many poor people in it. So it's a country with huge inequality and a huge gap between, if you like, the glossy, relatively high-functioning Egypt as a society with big businesses, right? People shouldn't confuse Egypt's situation with the situation of sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africans migrate, flee to Egypt for work, um, as do people from Syria and Libya and Sudan, because Egypt is by comparison, a very high functioning society. And so that, as it were, I'm saying all of this with A, to kind of put this on the map and B, to kind of, I think, to underline the fact that El Sisi's position is essentially a kind of status quo position, right? It ain't actually broken, as you were kind of suggesting, like this model could work. And so what we should do is double down on it. And we should build on the strengths of Egypt. And we should go back to you know, Egypt's glorious past of mega projects. And so mega projects he's done, including a, you know, massive new administrative capital. He's one of these folks who uh, look at a city like Cairo, a little bit like the Indonesians, look at Jakarta and just go, you know, reboot, let's just start again. There's no way we can we can make this work in the way that we we can't realize here, the modernist fantasy that we want to realize. So Let's go build ourselves for several tens of billions of dollars, a little bit like MBS is doing in Saudi Arabia, an entire new city. And let's hope the Saudis will come in and finance it too. So that, I think that's, part, that's a key element of his vision. Big projects, doubling down on the old vision of Egypt as a state-led economy in an age of you know, post-globalization, new national industrial economic strategies. You, know, you can even find ideological adherence for this kind of vision the question, of course, is at, at whose expense? And given resource constraints, do some of these projects, for instance, you know, a, a Suez Canal, a second Suez Canal line could increase the traffic and divert some heavy traffic through Egypt. These are these are progressive projects at some level, 
but what are the what are the costs to align with the benefits? To what extent does this kind of mega spending essentially embed the crony capitalist military economic industrial tie-ups that have characterized the Egyptian economy really since the 1950s and I think the prevalent consensus opinion from the outside at least is that all of this reinforces this a undynamic un inefficient slow growing externally dependent model of development that leaves the majority of Egyptians struggling just to make a bare living and the really sort of sort of horrifying fact is that Egypt has become a major driver of of the desperate informal illegal migration streams to Europe. I mean, there are tens of thousands of Egyptians every year now taking the risk of, of embarking on in these, you know, lethally dangerous smuggler trips across the Mediterranean. And, and that that tells you how desperate things have become, that, that a society which once had Egypt's promise should now become a driver of migration along with Sudan and Somalia and, and Libya and Eritrea. Um, you know, it's really a sign of of how of how dangerous this balance has become, and that I think is also a, a key understanding on Sisi's part that his country is simply too big for Europe to allow it to fail. So finally, I wanted to ask whether international institutions, the IMF or World Bank or anyone, frankly, has any coherent playbook for assisting a country like Egypt. I mean, it seems like from everything we've been discussing, Egypt in some ways went off track decades ago. It seems like Egypt has repeatedly been bailed out, but not really turned its economy around. And again, we're back in that situation. So what's the next step? I mean, should there be another debt bailout, even if there's not an expectation that anything will fundamentally change? Is this just kind of how international economics works sometimes, a kind of wash, rinse, repeat cycle? Yeah, I think you outline it, the dilemma really, really very nicely in that if you look at the economy, you conclude it needs a radical overhaul, a fundamental shift, and then you ask yourself what political force could do that. And you say the only political force that could is the Muslim Brotherhood that was cooed against in 2013 to the applause of the Western world. And and then you say, okay, so we have to deal with the military. And the IMF does have a playbook for situations like this. You know, most people looking at most liberal economists looking at the situation would say would say, you know, what we'd need to do clearly is liberalize, privatize, float the exchange rate, let the market mechanism work. You know, this is a society with a profound, deep, literally millennial deep commercial culture, huge, you know, talent pool, fundamentally the basis for a very, uh, very, you know, potentially very successful, indeed, internationally competitive university sector, like, you know, let these market forces rip, that will be the standard story, right? And, and, but um, there are two layers of opposition to this. The first and most acute is that there are so many poor people in Egypt, that if you actually went down that route, in the short run, it would be almost certain to generate a social emergency. So tens of millions of people, I think 60 to 70 million Egyptians depend right now on, on bread purchases that are at highly subsidized prices. So whenever liberal economists look at this, they say this is crazy, like, you know, creating a fixed price level in the long run will reduce supply, it will produce excessive demand for bread. You destabilize the market or you create, you essentially create a shortage economy. The obvious thing to do is to liberalize bread prices. The, the cost, however, of politically making that transition is absolutely is absolutely brutal. 
and the regime naturally shrinks back from it. Anyone maintaining power in Egypt historically has shrunk from from doing this because bread really is, as it were, you know, the staff of life in the most literal sense of the word. And last year, as global food prices yanked higher as a result of the Ukraine war, the, the regime actually expanded the food subsidy program. You then, as it will, will also have an oil and a you know a petrol and a diesel price subsidy scheme, which benefits more petty bourgeois and upper middle class people. And so you have a system of, regi- of uh, subsidies like that, all of which aggregate, coagulate constituencies. And the only kind of political force that can break that kind of deal is one which has massive legitimacy coming from somewhere else. And if you're a regime as fragile as the Sisi regime is, then you then you can't afford to back away. And every crisis you use to, to compound that. So this would be even a regime with goodwill. And what we know about you know, Sisi's regime, as we were saying earlier, is that in fact, it's determined to resist all of these demands from the outside. And if there's one thing in the IMF playbook, they know that any program of what they would call reform can only succeed if they have local buy-in. And in this case, they transparently don't have local buy-in. So they know in in a sense from the start that it's very unlikely to work. So, you know, stepping aside from the generic problem of unraveling subsidy programs like the bread subsidy program, in this particular case, there just isn't the political will. And furthermore, it's a regime that knows that it's crucial to all the other players in the region. So Egypt, again, is not, it's important, I think, folks, because you could say Egypt is the classic instance of a debt crisis induced by the Ukraine shock of 2022, because that's where really the current wave of debt problems has emerged out of. Egypt has had four IMF programs since 2016, but the real urgency began last spring because everyone looked around the world and said, okay, who imports grain? And Egypt is top of that list. Right, So as the Ukrainian-Russian grade trade shut down, Egypt was immediately targeted. Tens of billions of dollars were withdrawn in a panic. People were hoping to profit from the devaluation of the Egyptian currency, which has plunged by 50% by 50% since the spring of 2022. So there is, this, there is this biting logic which is driving Egypt towards crisis. And the regime sits there going, ha, and now you're going to have to help us. <laughs> right? Like, so... And and so they're in a very different position from a Sri Lanka or a Zambia who basically don't have crucial friends at the key moment. Sri Lanka maybe, Zambia really not, right? So the Egyptians know that they are actually, you know, key to any kind of stability in the region in a broader sense. I mean, look at their neighbors, Libya, Sudan, Syria, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon. And they literally conjure up the prospect of a Lebanese-style disaster in Egypt. Lebanon, we should do an episode about Lebanon because it's truly the most staggering implosion of a modern economy we've ever seen. I don't think that's on the cards for Egypt. The situation is not that bad. The foreign debt problem is 50% of GDP. The total debt is 97%. But it's an acute issue. And and part of the issue is that precisely the regime knows that they're too big to fail. And so we are talking brinkmanship here. It's it's going to be it's going to be very nerve-wracking I think for tens and tens of millions of Egyptians because in the end it's it's that bottom half plus of the Egyptian population that pays the price the people for whom the bread subsidies, the dollar exchange rate, the price of kerosene for cooking with you know, is a matter of whether you eat or not, whether your kids go to school, you know, that's where the really existential choices are going to be made. I mean, it's a sad state uh, for an economy like Egypt to fall into. The way you're describing it is basically sort of it's reduced to kind of holding 
these institutions hostage. I mean, this is a strongly cynical interpretation, but I think, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that is Sisi's understanding of his position. I mean, yeah. And there was a quote somewhere, I forget where I saw, where he essentially said something along the lines of, well, these kinds of reforms that, you know, the IMF is imposing in programs that were mutually agreed upon. He's like, those those kinds of reforms obviously aren't meant for a country like Egypt. Like, we're not capable of enacting them. And I just wonder what the technocrats in a place like the IMF think when they're dealing with, with that country. Like, they're, they're obliged to kind of work out all the numbers and, and come up with another program that they know is not going to work. But Yeah, when well, a makeshift is better than we should not make makeshift, right? Makeshift is what allows those most vulnerable people to avoid the real disaster of a... I mean, Lebanon, again, we should we should park it on the, that's a rhetorical argument. But nevertheless, what we're talking about is avoiding disaster. So a makeshift, which allows a stabilization and the maintenance of various subsidy regime is a lot better than some sort of cataclysmic. One shouldn't wish the, the purifying, the purging catastrophe, right? I mean, that's not... Yes, that's, that's yeah, a, yeah, no, no, no. It, it's it's just interesting. There are these kind of contradictions, these aporia of the international economy. Like they just know that this is not going to work, but you just carry, you just yeah, muddle through, and it's it, it, you just never talk about it. I guess out loud. No, you hope for you hope for a better you hope for a better dictatorship. You hope for a better authoritarian regime. I mean, when Sisi took office, he was. You know, he was on the wave of popularity. You know, that hasn't materialized. So maybe you maybe you see somebody who does. But that, you know, for so long, all the way back to the 19th century, has been the, as specifically about Egypt, in fact. You know, will a reforming autocrat arrive? And can you live with them when they do? Because by definition, then they become a powerful player. And, you know, are we, are we more comfortable dealing with a world in which there is a, you know, a strong Egypt, boisterous, possibly belligerent, asserting rights and claims, or what is amounts to something more like a kind of vacuum of power. Hmm. And obviously, yeah, as you mentioned, that would have a big effect on the region, including places like Israel and Palestine and Gaza. Um, but for now, uh, Egypt will remain engaged on all those fronts. But we do need to leave the conversation here for now. But we'll be back, though, in a second to talk about Claudia Golden, the Nobel Prize winner for economics this year. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So our next data point is 13%. That is the average gender pay gap across the OECD, the gap between earnings of men and earnings of women with women getting the shorter end of that bargain. 
The gender pay gap is the central object of study of Claudia Golden, the economist who won the Nobel Prize for Economics this year. Discussing the winners of that award has become something of a tradition on this podcast, so we didn't want to miss out this year. We thought we'd devote this segment to Golden's work. So Adam, as I said, much of Golden's work is focused on this gender pay gap, and I just thought a point of clarification would be useful. What exactly is the difference between using the term wage discrimination, which is used sometimes in other contexts, versus gender pay gap? I mean, what is the analytical distinction between those two terms? Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be able to discuss this prize because though last year I was sort of <laughs> sort of uncomprehending and we did a rather rude episode. This year, this year, which has got a lot of airplay, this year I think it's really just cause for celebration that the prize committee chose to award the prize to somebody who is an absolute pioneer in every respect in her, her field of research. The position of women within economics is contested in a way it is not in many humanities subjects. And she has, throughout her life, in a combination of really rigorous empirical and theoretical work, focused on a variety of issues to do with wage inequality and specifically gender inequality. She's actually famous also for a phrase called the Great Compression, which relates to wage inequality generally in the labor market. Um, But the prize and the prize committee single out her really path-breaking work on the issue of the gender pay gap. And I think the huge significance of Goldman's work is that she offers what you might call a kind of unified, systematic theory of the emergence of and the maintenance of and the fluctuations in unequal pay between unequal incomes between men and women over a very long horizon. So it's an extremely ambitious project of explanation. And key to it is to distinguish between Um, a variety of different sources of inequality, discrimination, differentiation between men and women in the workplace. And we'll get into like, you know, the very many facets of this because it's an extraordinarily elaborate and very carefully worked out and, and substantiated approach. But one of the key differences is to differentiate between wage discrimination and the gender pay gap. And wage discrimination is is rather specific for an economist. It's differences in wages not accounted for by productivity, observed productivity-related variables. It's very carefully formulated that because productivity is quite hard to see in and of itself. And so the question is, what is it that everyone, employers and workers might be able to see? And so observed productivity variables are the question. And how far are the differences in wages between men and women, which are not obviously in some simple way attributable to those? That is a quite limited form of of inequality because, as Golden shows in her work, the earnings pay gap could be explained by a whole range of other questions. Like, for instance, why are women tracked into relatively low productivity work within a sector? Or why are women tracked into sectors with relatively low productivity development? Or how are factors in their broader lives over the course of their lives, their choices about education, influencing how much they end up earning because in the end what we know is that still today over a long trajectory and increasingly politicized and overt debate about the inequalities between men and women within the OECD countries there is still a wage gap a a, a pay gap of around about 13% which is obviously is obviously highly significant and golden's work is a sort of massive systematic assault on this question which attempts to show how all of these different factors interact with each other. It's it's worth saying, 
and this is typical of the Nobel Prize in economics, that, that her approach is by the standards of, shall we say, radical feminism, left-wing feminism, or just a left-wing political economy, a highly conventional approach. What, what's hugely impressive about it is the way in which she brought the apparatus of conventional labor market economics to bear on gender and then used gender to innovate within labor market economics. We'll talk about her approach, for instance, to education, which I think is hugely interesting. But in the end, this is a story that revolves around technology on the one hand as a major driver of labor market outcomes. So a kind of classic supply side, neoclassical type of account and on the other hand, and with all of the ambiguity this implies, the choices of women. Now, of course, those choices are constrained, and she, more than anyone else, has powerfully illuminated the ways in which women's choices are constrained. But the focus is really on agency, on the part of women. So you can see it's a, it's a super subtle analytic the overall effect of which is on the one hand hugely political. Here is a powerful female academic bulldozing her way through the American econ establishment, insisting on the importance of this and winning the Nobel Prize. Right? This is a hugely political act. And on the other hand, the mode of analysis itself tends to depoliticize, tends to move towards the questions of technology, uh, human capital and choice rather than sexism and the politics of anti-sexism. And at one level that's very at one level that's very empowering, right? Because what she's insisting on saying is that women to a considerable extent determine their own destiny for better or for worse. And at some points it's a tragic story, but it is indeed a kind of built-in assumption of a neoclassical approach. Yeah, I mean, to get into the, the details a bit, I mean, she essentially applied a kind of supply and demand framework, it seems to me, to understanding this gender pay gap, and specifically to understanding how women's life cycles affect the supply of labor that they offer. So, yeah, I'm curious, what, what are the various factors that affect the amount of labor that women end up supplying, both on an individual life cycle basis and as Golan seems to analyze from the sociological cohort level perspective? Well, the, the full range of things you would expect to influence, you know, any economically rational actor's set of choices. So one of the points she makes is that in, in early manufacturing economies, the element of wage discrimination was actually relatively low because productivity was easily observed. And employers reward relatively higher productive workers. And if those are female, then they get higher pay. And so on that basis, then, of course, young women notably would want to enter the factory labor force because the wage conditions are, in fact, extremely attractive at that point. Right. So labor supply choices become a reflection of the expected outcomes, the expected ability to earn. And one of the factors there is, of course, how much education you have. How much education you have depends on how much you decide, in her terms, to invest in your education, how much your family decides to invest in your education. One of the crucial variables there is whether or not you can control your fertility. If a woman doesn't have control over her fertility and knows that she's at risk of being forced out of an un accommodating, inflexible labor market by pregnancy and childcare, then it doesn't make sense to invest in education that will only pay a reward. It's costly. It means 
staying out of the labor force for longer, and it may involve actual costs to education, it doesn't make sense to invest in human capital if you don't expect to be able to realize its gains in a reliable way. So she postulates this very powerful linkage between contraception and notably the pill, which is a woman-controlled, female-controlled contraceptive for the first time, because prior to that, condoms were, of course, under the man's control, if you like. But with the pill, women gain control over their own fertility. And with that, then, the desire and the impulse and the economic logic to commit to higher education and to greater and greater levels of education becomes overwhelming. So that now we're routinely across the advanced economy and increasingly large numbers of emerging markets see young women outperforming their cohort of of men very significantly across every single educational level. Because at that point, if you like, they've gained the capacity to earn the rewards on the educational investment they're making in a way that they themselves control. So this sense of agency, rational calculation you know, which is on the one hand kind of very conventional in its neoclassical assumptions, and yet when applied to this topic, yields really rather dramatic conclusions, is really characteristic of of the insights that, that Goldin's work provides. So finally, I guess to burrow down a little bit on this point, I'm curious whether the fact that economic decisions, the fact that they're made on a cohort level, on a, on a group level, as as we've been discussing, whether that means that injustices can only be corrected slowly, at least through through market means. You know, obviously, when it comes to changing individual incentives, economic policies kind of very used to thinking on those terms. But when it comes to kind of sociological frameworks that determine culture and affect decisions, or at least are decisions at important life stages, it seems to me a taller order for economic policy and market-oriented policy to kind of make change there. So, Is there inherent conservatism to Golden's approach to thinking about these issues? I mean, what she's pointing to, in some senses, you could say would be, you know, the transitional nature of the mid-20th century moment. I think it's better to see it, I think, rather than as a general claim, as a historical claim. Because I think she would think of the present moment as essentially as an internally consistent set of expectations and technologies of fertility control, which mean that young women have a major um, incentive to invest in education, to look for the best possible labor market outcomes, and the major logjam to closing the earnings and wage gap as it currently exists going forward is the inflexibility of workplaces with regard to childbirth and child rearing. And there is a very considerable penalty for pregnancy and childbirth, which continues to act in a highly asymmetric way on women rather than men. And so in a married couple with a child, it's quite, you know, there are statistical tests which show that the net effect of a married couple having a child is to depress the woman's long run expectations of earning and to raise those of the man. But the moment that she was thinking about, I think, where the cohort effect is most dramatic is earlier in the 20th century where we have these transitional generations where structural change is driving the labor market towards women, but the generation of women that enter the labor market in the 20s and 30s underestimate their own labor market outcomes, underinvest in their own education, and their daughters coming through that situation condition their choices about education on not the actual experience of their mothers, but on the choices of their mothers about education at an earlier moment. And so there is this disjuncture 
between the realities and the future realities of labor market opportunities and the choices that young people make, young women make. And there is, as a result, a sort of tragic disconnect, if you like, between what might have been possible and what ultimately is available to women that enter the labor market in the 50s and 60s. And then when the pill arrives to, as it were, allow fertility control, the combination then of a changed labor market, the pill, the the expectations and outcomes of the cohort of women coming through in the 60s, 70s and 80s who surge into higher education and Goldin herself is representative of that cohort, create, as it were, our current configuration where the fundamental structural battle is to be fought really over the question of eliminating the negative impact on women of childbirth and and child rearing. So it's a story, I think, in which that cohort explanation where the crucial variable is what do young women learn by observing the behavior of their mothers um, produces over a period of about half a century a really quite fundamental mismatch between what might have been possible and and what ultimately um, is achieved at the end of the century. I'm not sure I see that as a as a pessimistic story in general. I think it's a very powerful explanation of a particular phase of disconnect, essentially, between sociological patterns, expectations, early life decisions with regard to education and ultimate labor market outcomes. We should uh, end the conversation here for now, and we'll be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week.